Thank you. Well, good morning. In 1962, a ministry was established. It would grow and grow and reach all the nations and be translated into 75 different languages. Some say it is the most well-known, most widely used evangelical curriculum in church history. Amazing. You might know the name James Kennedy. James Kennedy was the senior pastor at Coral Ridge Church for 47 years. And in 1962, at the age of 22, he established a ministry called Evangelism Explosion. Evangelism Explosion. It helps train people how to share the gospel. And in the 1980s, EE, uh, commonly known as EE, came to Calvary. And we uh, used it to share with our visitors and guests. Well, in 1988, I was one such visitor with my wife, Kyle. And sure enough, that, that group of three people from the E team from Calvary came and shared the gospel at our home. Later on, we became members and joined the program and learned firsthand just how challenging a program that was. Lots of scriptures to memorize, as well as the steps of the presentation. It was a lot of fun and always great to see God at work. One passage that stayed with me, which is a really powerful statement, is Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Such a powerful verse. So many people go to life and go through earth trying to earn their way to heaven. Do good deeds, pray enough, go to church enough, give enough money, and hoping that their good deeds will outweigh their bad deeds. But that's never been God's plan. No, heaven is a gift. It's a free gift from God. In my EE training, there was an illustration that went along with that verse. And uh, it was about a birthday party. And so we'll say it's my birthday party for my daughter, Haley. She's here today. And uh, I'm about to give her her gift. I say, happy birthday, Haley. Uh, this is your gift from me. And she turns around quickly and says, sure, Dad. Here's $5 to help you pay for it. I say, what are you talking about? I don't want your money. This is, a, this is my gift to you on your birthday. You see, had I taken those $5 or even $0.05, cents, it would no longer have been a gift. No. She would have paid for some of it. And that's the way it is with eternal life. The gift of eternal life is a gift. You cannot pay for it. You do not deserve it. You cannot earn it. It is free. Our message today is called From Objects of Wrath to Objects of Love. Let me repeat that. From Objects of Wrath to Objects of Love. And we find it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. That'll be the, the sermon I'll be preaching on. And we're going to study, as we study God's word, we will see firsthand that it's foundational to the gospel and well suited for evangelism. And before I do uh, begin the sermon, I'd like to uh, pray, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for salvation. We thank you for making a way to you, a life eternal in communion with you. I pray, Father, for anyone who's not a believer today, would, would, your Holy Spirit would work in their hearts even now and they would turn their life to Christ. And for our friends and saints in Calvary who, who do believe in Jesus, may they remove their faith to the passion of the lost. This morning, I pray that words like sin and love, 
and wrath and being saved would be heartfelt, have deep meaning in their hearts, and not just glossed over like common words we use every day. And now, Father, may your word and spirit do a mighty work here today. Reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now in work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions and in our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath with the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The author of Ephesians is the Apostle Paul. He wrote it in Rome while still in prison in 61 AD. Some say that outside of Rome, Ephesus was the most important city that he visited. He visited there three times and once for three years, so he was well acquainted with the church there. Now, Ephesus was the capital city of the Roman province, Asia, located on two major trade routes and a port, and it became very busy political, commercial, and religious center, marked by three major components of Ephesian life. The first one is this huge, magnificent, grand temple. The Temple Artemis, a fertility goddess, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and thousands and thousands and thousands of people would come to see and pay homage to the fertility goddess. This thing was bigger than a football field, made completely of marble. It took 120 years to build. Imagine that. Secondly, there was a huge outdoor theater, 500 feet in diameter, and could hold 25,000 people. You may be familiar with this theater. Uh, in the book of Acts, we read, a whole bunch of silversmiths were chasing Paul and creating a riot for fear that the, Paul and his new religion, Christianity, was going to take their, their business, their silversmith business. Same theater. And lastly, and we know the Greeks love those athletics, in the center of town, a giant sports stadium complete with racetrack. So Ephesus was no small village, but sizable, populous, and active, where people worshipped many pagan gods. Now offhand, you may think we have nothing in common with Ephesus or with the Ephesians, but we do. Yes, we do. For starters, just minutes away from us is the New York City, the biggest, most populous city in the country and the finance capital of the world. So it's the city that never sleeps, I think that would equate to uh, Ephesus as far as being active and populous and diverse. Closer still, a giant stadium. I mean giant stadium which holds 75,000 people and uh, took only three years to build. And yes, we have our own Meadowlands racetrack as well. But much more than that we have in common with the Ephesians, much, much more. 
is our condition and state before putting our faith in Jesus. Before putting our faith in Jesus, we are sinners and objects of God's wrath, just like the Ephesians. And this brings us to our first point today. All of us, before putting our faith in Jesus, are facing God's righteous wrath. All of us, before putting our faith in Jesus, are facing God's righteous wrath. Paul is telling the church at Ephesus that before they put their faith in Jesus, they are spiritually dead to God. And we too, by nature, follow the ways of this world, constantly seeking to satisfy the desires of our hearts and our thoughts. Anyone, before putting their faith in Jesus, is by nature living for himself and under God's judgment and righteous wrath. We see this in verses 1 through 3. And I'll read them. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions and our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath with the rest of mankind. I want you to think about that word wrath. What comes to your mind when you use the word wrath? Things like, or words like anger, fury, rage, they all help, but the weight of wrath is such that I think it's bigger than those words, and uh, it just doesn't do it justice. Now listen to see how God describes it. In Zephaniah 1, it goes from 14 to, to 16, I'll read it. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of ruin. A day of devastation. A day of distress and anguish. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Yes, the day of wrath is coming, coming fast, full of distress, devastation, darkness, and ruin. That is God's wrath. It's terrifying. It's breathtaking. And all of us, all of us, before putting our faith in Jesus, is receiving that wrath. It's coming your way. Are you wondering about this sin nature that Paul's talking about? A sin nature that leads to death? And then how is it by nature we are children of God by nature. But we start in the beginning. We believe in one true God, and the God we serve is a God of truth. He never lies. He's a God of truth. And in Psalm 119, the psalmist says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And again in Psalm 18, the psalmist writes, This God, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. Yes, God's word is true, always true. And he says what he means, and he means what he says. And when he told Adam in the book of Genesis not to eat of the tree of good and evil, he meant it. He meant it. But he also meant the consequences that would follow such rebellion and sin. But we all know that Adam and Eve did eat of that tree. And sure as God said, death came into the world. Death through Adam's disobedience. Their, work, their walk and relationship with God was broken and never the same. Forevermore, man would be born under that sin, born spiritually dead to God, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 
For as in Adam, all die. And we read in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So we see here in Genesis, as we did in Ephesians, like Adam and Eve, and like the rest of mankind, we are by nature children of God's wrath. Now man's sin can be seen throughout the Bible. It's chapter after chapter, book after book, sin after sin. It is seen everywhere. And in Romans 3.23, we see, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not some, not a few, not many, all. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in 1 John, he writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the sin is not in us. The truth is not in us. Let me paraphrase that. If we say we have no sin, it's not true, and we're liars. Let's not deceive ourselves about sin. Sin is just not doing the big sins like murder and cheating and lying and stealing. No, it's much more than that. It's actually doing things you should be doing, but you don't do. And these are called sins of omission. Sins of omission. Like failing to forgive others, but you don't. Like failing to give thanks and praise to God when you should, and you don't. Like failing to pray and help others when you can, but you don't. In James 4, verse 17, James spells it out. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. Failing to do the right thing is the sin of omission. Now last year, a group of women read and studied a book called Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. Respectable Sins. I was curious about that. What's a respect? Is there even a respectable sin? Well, Bridges writes to say that we are so preoccupied with the major sins of our society that we've lost track in the need to deal with our more subtle sins, our more own personal subtle sins, like unrighteous anger, like anxiety, like unforgiveness, like selfishness, and more. And sin goes beyond doing bad things and not doing the good things we should be doing. It's even thinking sinfully. That's right. Even thinking sinfully is sin. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, You have heard that it is said, You should not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And in 1 John we read, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You see, sins... Sins, whether they be actions or inactions or even thoughts, they certainly do condemn us. Because sin's DNA is, wo- DNA is woven into our fabric of being, our, our sinful nature. By nature, we're sinful and objects of God's righteous wrath. God's standard is perfection. Perfection with no sin. We just cannot achieve that because of our sinful nature. We're just not capable of reaching God's perfect standard. So here we are, spiritually dead and facing God's righteous wrath. Now what? Now what? Is that the end? Are we doomed? Well, praise God we're not. I've got great news. Great news. And this brings us to our second point. All of us who put our faith in Jesus are permanently changed from objects of God's wrath to objects of God's love. All of us who put our faith in Jesus are permanently changed from objects of God's wrath to objects of God's love. 
Let's look at verses 4 and 5 with me. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By grace. We're saved by grace. We're, we're saved from our sins and the penalty of our sins. And we're saved from God's righteous wrath. Do you feel the weight of that wrath coming off your, your, your shoulders? When you were born again, when you believed in Jesus, did you have a peace that transcended all understanding and you felt this light lift of your sin being taken by God? Well, I did. I'm sure you did too. Yes, grace saves us. Let's look at the beginning of verses 5 for a second here. You may want to underline the first two words, even when, even when. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. God made us alive together with Christ and saved us. Even when we lived in disobedience to God. Even when we lived for ourselves. Even when we had no interest in God or the things of God. Even when we sinned again and again and again. Even when, even when, put your own even when in there, for your own sin, because by God's grace he saved us. Now this next verse, I want to show you something very, very interesting about how God and the Holy Spirit organized the words of this sentence, because it has an interesting meaning to it. It's, it's talking about verse 4, and it begins with, but God, but God. You know, but God, it's a game-changing two words. It's seen like 35 times in the Bible. These are game-changing words. The word but introduces a message of intervention. With, when with God right next to but, intervention's going to happen, and God's going to work powerfully. Now, a few words down the sentence is the word because, which means the meaning that, the, for the reason that. So here we are in the midst of our lost and hopeless condition, and Paul says to the church at Ephesus, hold on here. God is about to do something really, really big. He's going to intervene in mankind and change things forever. But before he tells you what he's about to do, he's going to tell you why he's doing it. Let me say that again. Before God tells us and reveals what he's going to do, he wants to tell us why he's doing it. So let's pick this up in verse 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God saves us because of his great love for us. He loves us. Praise God we're alive in Christ and we're no longer under the judgment and wrath of God. Praise God. You know, the Bible uses four different ways to say the word love. And the most deepest, most powerful one is the Greek word agape love. It means unconditional, sacrificial, deep love. It's the one that we see in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And there's a thing called the Bible Dictionary. I'm sure many of you know about it. I probably have one called Vines. And in Vines Expository Dictionary, it says, love can be known only from the actions it prompts. And I really like that description. Let me read it again. Love can be known only from the actions it prompts. Prompted by God's deep love for us, 
he shows his greatest action of love. He gives his son, Jesus, to sacrifice for our sins that we would have eternal life. We see this powerfully in Romans 5, verse 8. And this is the NIV translation. But God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were sinners, he died for us. Let me say that again. But God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Prompted by God's love, he sows his actions throughout the Bible. Throughout the Bible, God is at work. It's always prompted by his love. He feeds, he heals, he protects. He raises from the dead. He forgives, he sacrifices. All these things are driven by God's great love for us, these actions. Allow me to read my second point again. All of us who put our faith in Jesus are permanently changed from the object of God's wrath to the object of God's love. In Romans 8, it captures the permanence of God's love for us. Paul writes, For I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will have be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of God says nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now in the next verse, it can't be more clear. Salvation is a gift from God, not by works. In verse 8 and 9 we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. You see, no one, no one works for a gift. We work for wages, and we expect to be paid. No one goes to work for 40 hours and at the end of the week picks up a check and says, hey boss, thanks for the gift. No, no, we've earned that money. We've worked for its wages. But here Paul says something. This, he says, this is salvation work. This is different. And you didn't work at all for this. It's not you're doing, not even a little, which is why there'll be no boasting in heaven. Now we know who paid the price for us our salvation. It was Jesus Christ and not ourselves, and that's why no one will be boasting in heaven. Yes, grace is when God gives you something you don't deserve. We deserve wrath, but through Jesus, he gives us love. One acronym of the word grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Let me say that again. God's riches at Christ's expense. Jesus laid down his life for us, our sin that has been paid in full, at Christ's expense at Christ's expense. For us, salvation is a gift. It's a free gift, but it costs God dearly. His one and only Son was crucified, and the wrath of God was put upon him instead of us. Now, for those who put their faith in Jesus are forever changed from objects of God's love. And that's not all. God's grand salvation plan includes you in that work. And that's our third and final point. All of us who put our faith in Jesus are part of God's master plan to do good works. All of us who put our faith in Jesus are part of God's master plan to do good works. In verse 10 we read, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Have you ever thought that God's love for you extends beyond salvation? Yes. Have you ever thought that God's love for you extends beyond just being saved? Well, of course it does. Once you're saved, he still loves you. His grace and mercy continue. And he says, he says to you, like, you're my child. I love you forever. You have eternal life and communion with me. I have a plan for you. I have a purpose for you. I have work for you. And that work my father's prepared for in advance. And that work is to help build our kingdom. Some years ago, I watched a movie based on the Gospels. And the end was very moving. Jesus was risen from the dead. He's with his disciples. They're thrilled to be with him. Jesus is alive. They can't believe it. they're, They're just having a great time laughing and enjoying each other's company. Jesus is alive. The camera moves about. And it comes and lands on Jesus' hands. And you can see the scar of the nail that pierced it on his crucifixion. And I thought for a moment there, wow, all that, all that torture and the, the beatings and the, the, the flogging, the crown of thorns, the, the crucifixion itself, all that, was that because of my sin? Yes. My sin and your sin, the sin of the disciples, the sins of all mankind. And I wonder if he was angry at me. But he wasn't. He was thrilled. He was absolutely joyful with his disciples. The joy of the Lord was his completely. He's resurrected. And he turns to them and he says, Come, come follow me. Follow me. Trust me. I have a journey for you. It'll be a great, great journey. Come, follow me. My Father has prepared this for you. In fact, my, my Father is sending a helper, the Holy Spirit, to dwell in you, to guide you, and to lead you. Well, that's just an artistic ending of the gospel account. But I found it helpful. It's in keeping with the tenor of the, of the scriptures. But you know, in the same way, God is calling you. He's calling you to join him to do good works that his Father has prepared for us in advance to do. He's giving you skills and he's giving you gifts, talents, for the purpose of furthering his kingdom. To rejoice. Now rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in the good works that you can do and achieve that his Father has prepared you for. Another point in the passage is we are being created like Christ Jesus. The beginning of verse 10 reads, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. God is in work at us. He's at work at us. He's creating something different, something new. He's creating a new creation. We see this in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And just like Ezekiel, which the, the prophet Ezekiel spoke, and God is actually speaking here through the prophet, and he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. Remember, God, he's using you and me to shape us like Jesus. Yes, we are to be ambassadors of Christ, imitators of Christ, to love one another and shape us to be like Jesus. What is this good work that, that Paul's talking about? Was well, it not making disciples, sharing the gospel, reaching the lost? And isn't that good work practically demonstrated through loving each other, making others holy, if you can? 
putting others first? Are you asking yourself, I can't do all that. I can't do all that. Well, on your own, you can't do that. In this side of heaven, you won't be perfect. But you're not alone. You're in Christ. You're with Christ. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. And you're together, you can do the things that God prepared for you to do. Be encouraged. I mean, the Bible has great, great wisdom and great words from God that help you and strengthen you. Words like uh, Luke 1, for nothing is impossible with God, nothing. Or in Philippians chapter 4, verse, verse chapter 4, Paul writes, I can do all things in him who strengthens me, all things. And again in Philippians chapter 1, we read, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Be encouraged. Be strengthened. These are great works. These are promises that you can hold on to. I want to go back to the, the illustration I had earlier about the birthday party. If I'm handing this gift to my daughter, and uh, happy birthday, Haley. This is for you. She has to take that gift for me to have it. If she just looks at it or puts it on the table, she does not have the gift. She has to receive and take the gift. And that's the same thing it is with eternal life, the gift of eternal life. You have to receive it. So in closing, I have one more question to ask you. Do you have the gift? Do you have the gift of eternal life? If you do, praise God. You're a child of God. You're his child, and the wrath is no longer upon you. Your sins are forgiven. And if you don't have the gift, would you like to receive it? Don't wait. There's no need to wait. The day of salvation is today. Would you like to receive this gift? You may have some questions. That's okay. I had questions too. And we'd like to answer those questions and listen to you. On, uh, on the email, unfortunately, because this is a virtual service. But you can uh, send your, your questions and your heart to uh, an email at ours, mail at welcometocalvary.com. Mail at welcometocalvary.com, and that's a numerical two in between welcome and Calvary. And if today is the day you'd like to receive eternal life and your decision is to follow Jesus, well, praise God. Let's, let's do that together. I'd ask you to pray for me. Pray with me. This prayer is no special formula. It's just your confession to God. And he desires to know you and to love you and to have a personal relationship with you. So follow, follow along with me if you want to give your heart to Jesus. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I know I cannot save myself. So I come before you, Lord Jesus, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and into my life. I want to trust you and follow you as the Lord and my Savior. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen. Now, if you just prayed that with me, praise God, you're a child of God. Now, I'd ask you to ask. Tell someone that you gave your life to Jesus, that you made a decision for Jesus. Tell them, a Christian, and they will help you in your walk. I'm sure they'll have a, a local church to, to attend to and or maybe a, a Bible study. 
but be encouraged. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for salvation. I thank you for saving us. I thank you for loving us so deeply that you gave your life for us. I pray, Father God, for anyone here whose spirit is calling them to Jesus, that they would respond and say, yes, yes, Jesus. And again, for the believers here, help us to grow to be more and more like Jesus, helping each other, loving each other. Thank you for your scriptures, your word. Thank you have such a, a lamp unto our feet, guiding us, telling us your truth, revealing yourself to us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.